As Dr. Dennison mentioned, uh, my name is Nathaniel Harry Gutierrez Marshall Santiana Villanueva Barbosa Gonzalez y Carnes de Ruiz y Lopez. But you can just call me Nathaniel for short. Um, as a missionary kid, I grew up in Peru and lived all over the United States as well as our, my parents traveled from state to state raising support. Um, and one of the things that I carried with me uh, later in life were uh, these things called cassette tapes. Uh, and they were sermons of Dr. Dennison and uh, Pastor Charlie Dennison as well. And I, I have the privilege of having grown up under, under their preaching all over the world. Um, and so it's a, it's a big honor, privilege for me to be able to be here this morning. Thank you for, for that privilege. Now, I lived in Peru, and part of that was because my father was, uh, is Peruvian. He was general secretary of the Shining Path Communist Movement, a movement that killed over 70,000 people in, in the country of Peru. And I mentioned this before I read the text here because I want this to provide a little bit of context for what we're about to read. When my uh, dad came to Christ, having left this, uh, this horrible communist movement, it became very evident that God's uh, hand was, was, was working in his life. It was very evident that God had rescued him from absolute danger and horror and brought him into his saving grace. When God's uh, hand is evident in our lives, when we're able to see how God is working, we give him so much more glory. We honor him more when we are able to see where we've come from. And today, Jesus' parable that he gives us here in Matthew 18, we're going to get to see a little bit of where we have come from and the large debt that we had before Christ came to us. And so with that in mind, let's look now to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 25. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, we ask, Father, that you would speak through your servant, um, that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to see where this word affects each one of us. Lord, soften our hearts, soften our, 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 our pride, humble us, Lord, that we might hear and understand and obey what you have called us to this morning. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that we can all think back to times in our lives uh, when things are not, were not like they are now. Those moments that we would like to relive and enjoy, but there's also moments in each one of our lives that we perhaps wish that we would never remember again. That time that you embarrassed yourself in front of your friends, saying something you did not mean to. That time you got angry at someone only to find out that it was actually your fault to begin with. Or that time that you scratched the whole side of your dad's mint condition 98 Oldsmobile Regency on a fire hydrant. You know, just for example. Uh, These are some of the things we'd like to forget. But our past reminds us where we have come from. It reminds us of where we were, and it helps us to see and appreciate where we are today. In the Scriptures, we find that the people of God are quick to forget. God does miraculous things to provide for His people, and they promptly forget how merciful He has been to them. One moment they are rejoicing, and in the next moment they are complaining and grumbling about their current circumstances or current upcoming circumstances. And so it's no surprise to us that in Scripture, God repeatedly takes His people back to remember where they have come from. We can think of altars of God's faithfulness throughout Old Testament history and important objects placed in the Ark of the Covenant so that we would remember God's faithfulness through the most difficult stages of our forefathers' history. All of these things are meant to remind the people of God of their history, of who they were, of where God found them and the condition from which He rescued them. The parable that is before us today does this very same thing. Jesus is going to remind us who we were without Him. And Jesus will answer this question through Peter's question. In verse 21, we're given the context for this lesson. Peter approaches Jesus and asks Him, what appears to be a somewhat innocent question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As much as seven times, he asks. In other words, how many times must I forgive someone? Peter's question here reveals that he wants to know the upper limit. How many times does he have to endure people who have hurt him? And it's an interesting question because, I mean, some people will gossip about us, right? They will lie about us. They will take advantage of us. Or they will blatantly be mean to our faces. Peter wants to know if someone offends us, we can forgive them. 
But enough is enough, right? After all, we don't want people to take advantage of the grace that we are offering them or take advantage of the fact that we are called to ask forgiveness, right? But Peter mentions a specific number. I don't know if any of you found that strange. But I believe that Peter was trying to impress Jesus with his generosity here. See, from the Jewish Mishnah tradition, we know that they placed a limit on forgiving others up to a maximum of three times. In the Mishnah, it reads, when a person commits a transgression the first time, he is forgiven. A second time, he is forgiven. A third time, he is forgiven. But the fourth time, he is not forgiven, it reads. Four times was considered to be too much in the minds of the Jewish rabbis. So here, Peter seems to be going above and beyond and paints himself as someone who thinks that the limit should be even higher than three. He's more generous than the Jews and doubles the number, and he even rounds it to that perfect number of seven. But Jesus responds by taking seven and says, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. You see, Peter is asking the wrong question. It isn't about limiting forgiveness to three times or seven occurrences. Forgiveness originates not with man, but with God. God sets the rules on forgiveness, and by His grace, His forgiveness is deep, wide, and abundant. And Jesus expects the same of us. We cannot put limits on forgiveness. So Jesus tells a parable that helps us understand why we should imitate Him. And the context has been set. What should Christian forgiveness look like? Well, verse 23 opens with the parable of a king who is settling financial accounts with his servants. A servant is brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. The man could not pay, and the master ordered him to be sold with his wife, with his children, and all that he had to make payments on that debt. In verse 26, we see that the servant falls to his knees, pleading, begging for patience, stating that he would pay everything that was owed. But the interesting thing is that if we do a little bit of math, we can understand how bad of a situation this actually was. The man owed 10,000 talents. One theologian explains that a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. And if a man owed the king 10,000 talents, he would need 200,000 years to pay off his debt. If this man owed him even 20 years of work, that would still be a lot, but 200,000 years? If we took the U.S. average salary in 2022 of $60,000 and multiplied it against 200,000 years, we would get $12 billion. This man was in debt to the king, and there was simply no way for him to repay his debt. It was impossible. The man asks for time to pay the king everything, something he would never be able to do. It was unrealistic and even foolish of the man to think that he could repay that king. Now, up to this point in the narrative, people's emotions should be stirring. Our minds and our hearts must be bothered. Why is Jesus telling this story? What is he saying here? Well, Jesus explains that this parable is comparable to the kingdom of heaven. Every last one of us 
has an enormous debt before our Heavenly Father. We have all sinned against God's law and deserve His just judgment. In fact, our debt is so large that we would never be able to pay it. And we often forget this. We forget how great a debt we owe to God. How great a debt we owe to God. We minimize our sins and call them things that sound, well, a little bit less evil. We call them little white lies. Or, well, they were just elaborating or exaggerating. We consider certain sins to be harmless. We don't like to call sin what it is. We minimize it. We relativize the idea of sin by comparing our sins to other more heinous sins of others. We think of sin uh, being sin only if it actually hurts someone else. And then on the other hand, we consider private sins to be, well, not that big a deal. In this way, we make our sin something more palatable, less of an issue in our minds, less serious than it actually is. The other thing that we do is that we make God less than who He actually is. We make Him into a nice God who will generally overlook any sin as long as we've done our best to change. We don't think about His wrath and judgment on sin because we know, well, we have made a profession of faith. And because after all, we know that Jesus has paid for all sins, past, present, and future. But in this parable, Jesus makes it clear who we are before God. And what debt is owed to God by mankind? Our sins are never small in God's eyes. Here in this parable, the depth of our sin is made apparent, and Jesus shows us who we are, where God found us, and how much our debt really is to Him. The Scriptures teach us that before Jesus, we were like useless driftwood, no purpose. We were not holy and beautiful. We were totally depraved, Slaves to sin, dead in our trespasses, without hope in this world, being eternally condemned by God's wrath. This is who we were and where we were. Jesus reminds us of this. But he also reminds us that while God is merciful, God is also just. This parable teaches us that God will not simply forget a debt that great. As a just judge and king, he will not simply overlook a debt that is owed to him. He cannot ignore the number of our sins, the depths, the depth of our depravity, or the fruit of our unrighteousness. He is holy and he cannot ignore who he is. Now the original audience must have expected the story to end, telling us that that man and his family were sold for a certain price to pay off that part of his debt. But what's strange about this story is that Something happens that no one expects. The scripture says that out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him. But not only did he release him, in verse 27 we read that the master forgave him his debt. 200,000 years of work forgiven just like that. Who does that? We see that God pays the debt on behalf of this debtor. All of this man's concerns, all of his debts, the life sentence for himself, the threat against his wife and his children suddenly are all gone. They are free. They have nothing to worry about. They have a new lease on life. It's like they hit the lottery. Can you imagine? How would you react? 
I would assume that this man would have been overjoyed, going around town like a crazy person, hugging whoever he saw in sight, dancing and singing at the top of his voice. This is what you would expect. This is probably what most of us would have done. But sadly, this is not what we see. Instead, this man goes out. He hunts down one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he demands immediate repayment. Now, denarius was the type of currency that the poor would be more familiar with. It represents one day's wage. So he was owed a debt of approximately a hundred days' work. Approximately four months' worth of work. It is a decent-sized debt, and with our previous math, it work out. Excuse me, with our previous math, it would have worked out to about fifteen thousand to twenty thousand dollars. So it's significant, right? It's not nothing, but it is nothing in comparison to the larger debt of twelve billion dollars or two hundred thousand years of work. The expected response is, "Hey, I've." been forgiven my enormous debt. I'll forgive yours too, right? But instead, what do we read? This man who was forgiven 200,000 years of work showed him no mercy and began strangling the servant. He throws him into prison, refusing to grant the man mercy. Not only is he unkind, he's violent. He's angry. He's merciless. This man seems to be completely unaffected and unchanged by the king's gracious gift. Mercy never enters the equation in this man's mind. Do you see the double standard? This man deserved to be punished. He could not pay his debt and was forgiven his entire debt and set free. And somehow he felt that he deserved the king's mercy but that that man who owed him a debt deserved no mercy. The point is that none of us deserve mercy. So when we are forgiven such an enormous debt, we should be transformed by such a great forgiveness. We should be out in the streets shouting from the, and shouting from the rooftops of God's great forgiveness and imitating that graciousness ourselves. But this man, this man is ruthless. After he has received gracious forgiveness, he refuses to show grace to others and rather demands that his debtor pay him in full. His response shocks even his fellow servants and they report it to the king immediately. And the king acts swiftly and condemns this man to life in prison. And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't know about you, but that's a terrifying verse. Verse 35 says, In no uncertain terms, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, so also our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. I don't know how many of you, when you were in high school age or in college, Uh, remember a time where you pushed the limit with your parents. Your parents may have warned you how to drive the car or how to handle your cell phones or whatever it may have been. And you thought they were bluffing because you were their kid. 
They had shown you mercy and kindness time and time again. They're not going to do anything rash, we reason. Then you push the limits again, and all of a sudden, no more car, no more cell phone, and you're grounded. Swift and merciless justice is administered. And you're shocked. You didn't expect it to go that way, even though you were warned. After all, we're their kids. They promised to love us and take care of us. It seems that too often we see our relationship with God the Father this way. Especially as Reformed Presbyterians, we know our doctrines. We know that we have been saved by grace, not by works. We know that we've been predestined from time. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we push the limits. We test the limits and we push them again. We ask questions like, how many times do I have to forgive my wife when she offends me? If, I love my, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, well, who exactly is my neighbor? I want to know so that I can do that and no more. We're constantly looking for the limits. How merciful do I really need to be? We Presbyterians are often called the frozen chosen. We're called this because other denominations believe that our doctrine of election and, Presbyter- and predestination can cause us to be spiritually apathetic. And there might be some truth to that. Some truth, not all of it. Sometimes the call to obedience falls on deaf ears for us. After all, we know that God has called us to love us with love him with all of our heart, soul, strength and mind, to love our neighbors as ourselves. But we also know that we're going to fail and that God's going to be merciful to us. We think as long as we do our best, it's okay. After all, we feel justified in Paul's confession in Romans 7, 18 and 19. Or 19. Uh, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We say, see, even Paul. Paul struggled with sin and clearly he's in heaven. But the problem is we ignore other passages from Paul. Like this one in Philippians 2.2, 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in 1 John chapter 3, we read, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone sees the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. James says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this morning of the dangers of the Christian's double standard. We Reformed types can be very entitled Christians. We believe somehow that because we know our Bibles, our theology and our doctrines, that somehow we will be safe from God's judgment just because we know those. We talk the talk, but we often fail to practice what we believe. And if we are to have a right understanding of the doctrines we hold so dearly, we simply cannot live a life where we do not display the fruits of change in line with these doctrines. To have true doctrine means we must also have correct conduct. This is why John says so clearly, if you, having been justified by the death of Jesus on the cross, 
can somehow close your heart to the need of a brother, God's love does not abide in you. We have to produce fruit in line with our doctrine. Throughout James, we read again and again that, with, that faith without works is no true faith. Talk without practice is just talk. Now, it's important to clarify for a moment that all of these statements are made within a context. They're made to the church of Christ. You see, we read in this parable in Matthew 18 that the man, this man has been shown mercy from the Father. And when Jesus says, he who shows no mercy will be shown no mercy, he's saying it in the context of the mercy that's already been shown by the Father. You see, this is not a way to be saved. We believe that the Bible is abundantly clear that salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. But the Bible is also abundantly clear that we must have a genuine faith A genuine faith that produces genuine fruit. As Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. So it's not about how long you've attended church or how beautifully you sing or how well you can recite our beloved creeds and confessions if you do not produce fruit of love, forgiveness, and mercy. James says if you don't have those, then your faith is dead. It's all in vain. This is serious. So, brothers and sisters, reflecting on this passage today, is there someone in this church, someone in this very room who you have not forgiven? Someone that you do not love? Someone to whom you have not shown mercy? Someone who you judge and avoid? Or who you gossip about? Think for a moment. Bring that person's name to your mind. Who are you still mad at? Who do you often hold a grudge against? Who comes to mind? If you can't think of anyone's, if no one's name pops into your mind, I can give you a strategy to help think of those people because they exist in almost all of our hearts and minds. Go home at lunch and ask your wife or your children to name that name and they may come up with that name sooner than you realize. We, are, we cannot ignore this call. Jesus commands us to forgive as we have been forgiven. We cannot refuse to obey. We cannot mock God. We cannot despise the forgiveness that He has given us. We cannot despise the death of Jesus Christ who shed His blood, giving up, every, giving up His very life out of love for us. Brothers and sisters, if I have described, if you have thought of someone in your mind, or if you will later today, I would encourage you not to suppress that feeling. That is the Spirit convincing and convicting you through His Word. Do not ignore the call to obedience. Now, forgiveness is very hard, extremely hard. No one says that it isn't. If it was easy, if this was a natural thing for us, Jesus would not be calling us to it. But as pastors, uh, we have the unique opportunity to delve deep into the hearts of the people in our congregation. And as I continue to grow as a pastor, I see the pain around us. It's far greater than anything that I could have imagined. The suffering and anguish and lives of Christians in Christ's body is far greater than any of us can bear. And the saddest thing is, is that much of the sin and offense and harm to the church does not come from outside of these walls, but from within. 
from our very own. You see, this parable reveals something about us. We don't think that our sin is that bad. We consider our sin to be very low, but instead we tend to rage and dwell on the sins of others around us. We are slow to forgive someone who has hurt us. When people offend us, excuse me, when we hurt others, we expect them to forgive us quickly. But when people offend us or hurt us, we want them to pay. We're like the man in the parable who goes and chokes the person who has offended him, who has this great debt. How dare you? How could you? We want people to pay for their offenses. Now, of course, we don't do this physically. I hope not. But rather in our hearts. We want people to have to hurt a little bit for the hurt that they have caused us. We shun people and we give them the silent treatment or we cut them off from our friendships so they have to pay for their offense. Or we think... I don't have a problem forgiving people. How many of you thought this way? And then a little voice inside of us whispers a qualification. As long as I can verify that they really mean it. As long as I can assure that they won't offend me again. Oftentimes we also don't feel like we need to be the first to repent and to ask forgiveness. Isn't that so true? We like to wait for other people to come to us first. One of the most common patterns we see in broken relationships and broken marriages is that the one person is always waiting for the other person to make the first move. Yes, I'm guilty, we think, but only 5% guilty. She, she is 95% guilty. So I will forgive so long as she comes to me first and owns her sin. Right? Right? Meanwhile, all our marriages suffer, our children suffer, our church suffers, and the bride of Christ is stained because of our pride. And doesn't this sound a little bit like Peter's reasoning, that whoever has the bigger guilt should be the one? Lord, if we didn't really start the problem and we're only 5% guilty in the fight, do we really need to be the one who has to, has to try to fix the situation? Isn't that on the other person who has the greater guilt? Paul answers this question in Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. See, Paul doesn't say, if it is your fault, then you should seek reconciliation. He says, on your part, Do all you can do to live peaceably. Die to your pride and take the first step to make peace. See, we're constantly looking for limits so that we can justify not having to do something that we know that we should do. We're trying to figure out when we really have to ask forgiveness or have to give forgiveness rather than seeking to be generous with our forgiving as God has been generous with us. But rather than base our forgiveness on human and worldly standards of forgiveness, Jesus calls us to forgive others freely, even as we have been forgiven by Him. To look back and to remember that our debt before God was impossible to pay. And that it is a debt that we owe to a holy God, if it were not for Christ Jesus. How much more are we called to be quick to forgive 
the offenses of others towards us. Sure, they are legitimate offenses, hurtful offenses, but nothing in comparison with the debt of offenses that we had against God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. Praise be to God the Father that when He found us dead in our trespasses and sins, He did not wait for us to take the first step toward Him because we never would have been able to because of our sin. He didn't wait for us to repent. He saw our broken estate. He saw us dead and beaten up by our own sins. And He came to us. He rescued us. And He gave us life. Making us whole and beautiful. Making us His very own. What a glorious thing to think that we are God's children, not because of anything within us, but because of what He has paid for us, what He has done for us. May we as God's children live and forgive as our Heavenly Father. May we be conduits of this very grace that has been extended to us, extending His love and forgiveness to all those in the world, our nations, our cities, but especially to those around us here in this very church, in our families, our brothers and sisters, in the household of God. What a better place to be part of than a church that brims with love and joy and peace because of the forgiveness that we have received from God our Father and have freely given to one another in His name. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a gracious God who does not deal with us as our sins deserve. And that You have demonstrated to us the way that we ought to live as Your children. Children that bear fruit. Children that forgive as we have been forgiven. Father, we confess that we are often tight with our forgiveness. We're willing to receive Your forgiveness, but we are not quick to give others our forgiveness. Father, we ask Your forgiveness. We ask that You would help Your forgiveness to us to change us, to transform us, that we might be gracious uh, children of God who extend peace, who extend reconciliation, who seek peace with all men as far as it depends on us. Father, we pray that You would... um, Continue to be merciful to us as we uh, patiently, as we, as we struggle to learn how to forgive and to be forgiving. Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to show us mercy and that we would reflect uh, your grace in the, in the lives of others. Show us to love through your grace and forgiveness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.